Hello and welcome to the Father's House Church. We're so glad that you're here. We hope that you're encouraged by today's message from our lead pastor, Greg Fraser. Well, we're in our series on the, in the Gospel of Luke, and um, I just am loving learning a little bit more about what God's heart and intention is in terms of we're going to be journeying through Luke probably for another, uh, for the rest of this month, then we're going to take a Christmas break and do some Christmas series. And then we're going to jump back into Luke in January, just for a couple of weeks, and then we're going to go head into the book of Acts. And, uh, it, you know, it's just been an amazing series to me. We learned in the last couple of weeks that uh, Jesus it comes bringing the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God. This message of that the kingdom of God is open to all mankind, that you can come into a relationship with God, and you can walk and journey in life with God. And then he demonstrated the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He did all kinds of things. And then he began to gather around him a dream team. And we found out that Jesus picked his dream team quite differently than we do in, our, in the world. He picks the people that did not qualify to uh, serve in any way uh, under the old covenant law. And actually, he picks these people that, based on that, it's kind of humorous in some ways, he picks a sinful fisherman who was the apostle Peter, an unacceptable tax collector named Levi who became the apostle Matthew and the writer of the first gospel. He picked a leper and a paraplegic. And so Jesus is building this team, and uh, we've been carrying on from that point. Now we're in chapter 7. I'm going to read significant portions of chapter 7 because Jesus then does something else even more kind of amazing, believe it or not. He actually breaks even bigger religious boundaries. You see, the Jewish people had very strict set of laws and beliefs about people and things that took away from their ritual purity. So foods people, situations, mixing races, all these things. And uh, so they kind of set themselves on this path, and, and I, I understand it in their pursuit of trying to find and be right with God. Uh, but what you need to understand is that the law makes nothing right. Uh, we can't be right with God by trying to obey the law of the old covenant, uh, but we're, we come to the understanding of how desperately we need salvation when we go that, that way. And so Jesus begins to t now turn his attention upon the marginalized of society, those that had been ignored, uh, those that had been separated from the community of faith, and uh, he spends time with them. And this is what I want you to understand, why we called our sermon Mr. Clean. We'll get there in a moment. But uh, it says, under the old covenant, when something holy touched something unholy, the holy became defiled or unholy. And so this was a deeply held belief by the Jewish people. You need to understand that before we read into chapter 7. I'm just going to give you a quick illustration of that. We're going to eventually get there in the book of Acts, but I'm going to tell you about this in Acts chapter 10, 11. So the apostle Peter uh, is hungry, and he's asked some food to be prepared for him. And then he goes up on the roof of a house, and uh, he's praying. And in, while he's praying, he goes into a trance, 
the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, nothing bizarre, it was God that did it, and he sees this sheet coming down from heaven, and on this sheet are all kinds of animals of every kind you can imagine, and the sheet is lowered before him, and a voice from heaven says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And then Peter re reacts because he's seeing all these animals, and many of these animals under the Old Testament law were unclean, and he wasn't allowed to eat them. And he says, surely not, Lord. I've, my lips have never touched anything unclean or impure. But the voice spoke a second side time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so he's pondering this vision that came down from heaven. Three times the sheet is lowered. Three times the animals are there. And uh, he's pondering what this means. And suddenly there's a knock on the door where he's at. And three Gentiles show up and they say, we were sent here by God, basically, so to ask for a guy named Peter. They don't even know what they're, they're just been sent on this journey. And they, he's supposed to come and explain to us the way of God more thoroughly. So Peter concluded, well, that vision must be God. The reason it was lowered up and down three times is there's three Gentiles at the door. Because I want you to understand, for a Jewish person to go with a Gentile and to eat with a Gentile was very not kosher, okay? And so Peter goes with them, and uh, he begins to explain the way of God more carefully to these people. Not only do they get saved, but they literally get filled with the Holy Spirit, start speaking in other tongues, and everyone who's with Peter is like, oh my gosh, I guess God has decided to save the Gentiles too. And so miracle of miracles, we see the story of God unfolding and opening up, not just to a select group of people from the old covenant, but a new group of people, you and I, who are followers that are wanting to follow God, the door has been opened to us. And I'm going to tell you, this is very interesting, it doesn't go well for Peter after that. Peter gets called to the, to, to the mat in Acts chapter 11. They basically rebuke him and they say these words. You know, it's kind of incredible. He says, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him? Like, forget the miracle of God that people, the Gentiles, are getting saved. You went into his house and you ate some of his food? And then Peter had to explain, I won't go into it because we're going to get into it when we get in the book of Acts, but it literally there's a whole council that comes out of this. Is God really saving the Gentiles? And when the Gentiles get saved, should they be circumcised or uncircumcised? Uh, does that matter? And uh, praise the Lord, they said, no, they don't have to follow the Old Testament customs. It's all okay. And everybody said, all the men, Amen. Okay. So under the new covenant, this is what's amazing we're going to find out. Under the new covenant, when something holy touches something unholy, that which is unholy is transformed by the power of holiness. This is a total change, you guys. This is a total radical shift from the way things used to happen. And so, as I said earlier, the law is powerless to change us. But there's a new covenant now, the covenant of grace, the covenant of this relationship with God Almighty that actually can transform our lives. This is all replete through the New Testament. But one scripture I'll just give you quickly, Hebrews 7 says, 
For on one hand, the former commandment is canceled because it's weak and useless, because of its inability to justify the sinner before God. For the law has never made anything perfect. Well, on the other hand, a better hope has been introduced through which we now continually draw near to God. There, I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture? Maybe we don't. Hang on. Oh, there he is. There's no clean like Mr. Clean. This is an unofficial picture of Jesus. I don't know if it is or not, but uh, (laughs) somehow I don't think it is. So, yeah, it's not. You're okay. But when Jesus touches your life, how many of you know there's no clean like Mr. Clean? Amen? Well, let's pray and uh, see what Jesus is doing in this text. Father God, help me to preach your word. And uh, (laughs) God, give us hearts to receive. Eyes that see, ears that hear. Hearts that are open to hear you, receive from you, and to apply what we learn today. God, you're going to give us some keys today of how we get Mr. Clean to actually move toward us and not away from us. And I pray for that revelation to hit our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how does Jesus in this text, in the story, he's moving toward what you're going to see. He's moving toward three people that under the old covenant, he would not be allowed to associate with or touch or be around, okay? So I want you to keep that in your mind. I'm going to whip through three stories in this, bo- in this book. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the first one. What causes or when do we see Jesus move toward us? When do we see this idea of God coming in and cleaning up lives? The first one, the first key I want to talk to you about is submissive faith. Now, submission is a mouthful, submission, submissive faith. Well, just submission, you've heard me say this multiple times, means to come under an authority and support that authority in its mission. It's very easy. Sub means to come under. Mission is the duty that that person has been called to. Well, if we're to be in submission, we need to understand what authority is. Now, authority is the right and power to rule, okay? So God, in the beginning of time, gave us dominion over the world, and he he gave mankind the right and power to rule and to exercise authority over whatever realm they are in. And so you all in this room, every single person has been given dominion and a realm of authority to operate in. Now, in God's kingdom, we're going to, because you're going to see the difference between authority in the world and authority in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, authority is given in order to serve the world and to do good. Okay? This is the heart of God in order and giving authority. But think about the authority. Every single one of you in this room has dominion over something or someone. Here it is. Number one place that you have dominion over. Are you ready for this? Yourself. You have dominion over yourself. God has given you the power, particularly in the new covenant now, to rule yourself in order to be able to do good and to serve mankind. That's a good dominion to have. Amen? This is, God is with you on that. People over their possessions. You have dominion. You know, you're like, well, you know, I don't know, I don't have that much. Well, you know what, I'm going to tell you, buy a shoebox next week because there are kids that are going to get that that have nothing, 
literally nothing. I know that because when I was in Mozambique and I brought some toys and stuff with me and I gave one of those toys to a little girl, her whole world lit up. I don't know if she ever had a toy, but she was playing with this ball and rolling it to me and laughing joyfully and I thought to myself, dear God, a 25 cent ball just changed this little girl. Help me, Jesus. Amen? So you have, you have dominion. You have power over your possessions. Parents are to take dominion in their home. Amen? Okay, managers over employees and their resources. Owners over managers. Labor laws over owners. Leadership over churches. Government officials over citizens. But how many of you know we've also seen a terrible abuse of authority in our world? Okay, we've seen that. We're seeing it right now, maybe, somebody would say. So we've seen the abuse been taken advantage of one another instead of serving each other for good. We use our authority to rule over others and take dominion over others. And this is not the heart of God. What's the difference between God's way of using authority and man's? So let me read this just carefully to you. Authority is given by God to men and institutions in order to serve God's purposes in blessing and leading men to prosper, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fulfill their God-given assignments or ministries. In the kingdom of God, again, we take dominion over ourselves in order to greater serve others in whatever area of authority that we've been given. But in the world, church, listen to me, People want to take dominion over others so those others can serve them. That's the difference between godly authority and worldly authority. Are you following me? Okay, so I'm setting this whole thing up just to tell you the first story. You know, and I believe that this is one of the greatest problems in the world today, and I believe it's one of the greatest problems in marriage. It's one of the greatest problems in business. It's one of the greatest problems in education. It's one of the greatest problems in every realm of life. Our misunderstanding of this thing called authority and submission. Okay? That's why I'm taking a little bit of time to set this up for you. Now, let me read the story quickly, and then we're going to break into it, starting in Luke chapter 7, the faith of the centurion. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion's uh, uh, servant to whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and went to some elders of the Jews and asking him to come and heal the servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves you to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy even to come to you, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say, come to this one, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. I love this story 
because this man is one of the greatest pictures next to Jesus Christ himself of what biblical, godly authority looks like. I believe that this is an incredible picture of submission, authority, and faith. Let me give you some of the principles that are gonna be, you're gonna see here. Number one is this, the centurion loved and served those he had authority over. <laughs> there was a centurion servant, our text said, whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die. Now, this centurion, you have to understand, you guys, is like, um, a centurion is like a commander of about 80 soldiers, and then there's a, a few others, so just think of 100, basically, is the number you want to think of. But he, he was likely a, a head centurion, which means he was head over all the other centurions. Either, either way, he either had command over 100 or he had command over all the other centurions, which would be about a command of over 6,000 men. He'd be right next to the, the prefect or the leader of the entire cohort of that, of that understanding. And so he would be a very powerful, authoritative man. And I'm going to tell you, the Romans had this incredible uh, idea or picture painted about them that they really didn't, they were, they were despots, they were terrible rulers. But here's a picture of a ruler who cares enough about a servant to go to task to try and see him made well. It's kind of incredible. Now look at what he does. The centurion heard of Jesus and he sent some elders of the Jews to him, taking him to come and he, asking him to come and heal the servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. What's he using his authority? You guys understand something. This is a Roman ruler who is ruling over the Jews. He's a, he's a ruler. These are, these are his op the oppressed people under him. But he goes to them, the rulers of those people, and says, could you please go to Jesus for me on behalf of my servant? He doesn't command them, okay? He doesn't command them. He requests them. Now, why do they respond to his request? Because he loved them. He deserves for you to do this. You got to understand the Jews were trying to kill their oppressors, the Romans, but this guy has done it so well that the, now the ruling people of that area are saying and going to Jesus, please, would you please go and do what this man asks, for he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. This is mind-blowing, you guys. Here's a guy that could have walked in, commanded them, commanded Jesus to come and heal his servant. But instead, because he understands the principles of authority and submission, he sends the Jewish elders. Wow. Whom he served sacrificially and even with his love and his money. Now here's what's crazy. Upon hearing this story, Jesus went to go to the house of the centurion. Do you understand as a rabbi, 
under the old covenant for him to go to a Roman's house would make him ritually unpure. But because Jesus is under a new covenant and bringing a new power, he's like, yeah, no problem. I will go into the place where the law says I will be defiled, but I will go and I will bring the power of life where there is death. Wow. I love this. <laughs> I think we just don't grasp how incredible this story really is. He operated in true biblical authority and submission, and they had no, and then eventually he goes on and he has no problem trusting Jesus. I mean, this story is mind blowing. Jesus is heading toward his house. Now, he knows because, you know, maybe he's a proselyte. Maybe he's following Jewish understanding. He knows that for a Jew to come to his house would ritually defile that person. So he sends a messenger. You don't even need to come to my house. I'm not even worthy that you would do that. This guy's the Roman ruler. But only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I understand authority. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come. I tell this one, do that, and he does it. It's enough that you just speak it. This is one of the two times in the entire New Testament where Jesus is amazed. He's amazed at this guy. I love this guy. Hallelujah. So he goes in. And this is what we want to look at next. The centurion completely understood and operated in true power, authority, and submission. We've already put that up there on the screen. And I read that scripture to you. Hallelujah. The Jewish leaders are advocating for the Roman leader who was over them. Because this man did not use his authority to abuse and command, but he used his authority to serve and love those under him, and they gladly advocated for him in his time of need. Church, if I could get us to grasp one thing in life, the kingdom of God is about mutual submission. I tell people this and they think I'm crazy. God is the most submissive being in the universe. He will submit to your will all the time. In other words, he will let you run your life off a cliff. He'll warn you. He'll tell you, don't do that. Stop that. That's going to hurt you. Don't go there. But ultimately, mankind, he's empowered you to say, I'm going to lead my own life and rule my own life and do my own thing, or... I'm going to bring my life under the king of kings and live within his kingdom and live a submitted life because that's where the real life and true life is. This is God's heart. And so the whole world can just do whatever they want or they can take their life and say, I am coming under submission with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we live in a world, church, and we know this is true, where the ugly opposite rears its head all the time, okay? Because listen to this. I'm going to turn a twist on this. When those in authority act as loving servants to those who would, should be in submission to them, those under that type of leader can either respond with gratitude and loving submission 
or they can begin to expect and abuse that generosity and live with a sense of entitlement instead of gratitude. We have a choice. When we have a godly leader, when we have a godly leader in government, when we have a godly leader in our school system, a godly leader, and they might not be godly, you understand, but they're following the principles of the kingdom. Are you following what I'm saying? They're using their position in submission. They're using their position of authority for the service of others and for the good of those who are under them. Church, I'm going to tell you something. You should pray for the owner of the business you work for all the time. Do you understand the oppression that they face, the pressure that they're facing on labor laws and different things? And oftentimes I sit with business owners and they're just blown away by, at times they have some employees that are so grateful, so thankful to have a job. So it's just an incredible thing. And then other times they're just, it, they take it for granted and they want more. And it's like, oh my gosh. Betty and I saw this all the time when we were in Fort McMurray people making the largest salaries in Canada and so thankful, so grateful when they started. And within a few months, they were just like, oh, that company's ripping me off. That company's doing this. And I'm like, oh my, you are in the best company in, the, in Canada making the largest wage. Come on now. Understand authority and submission if you want the blessing of God in your life. And even us, when we are in positions of submission, live and act supportively to those we are under, that authority can either respond with love and continued service, or that authority can start to use and abuse those things. How many of you have seen this in the world? Church, it's, it's happening all the time, more and more and more. The entitlement of those who should be grateful and thankful and submissive is growing. And the abuse of people in authority is growing. That's why it's so refreshing when you meet a leader who loves the people who work with him, who loves his staff enough. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing to be part in a relationship? But have we not seen this in a positive way in families, churches, businesses, and even nations? And I'm going to tell you, for me, the convicting part of this is I think we see it in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I think we are to be nothing but grateful, thankful, and, and, and submissive to the one who uses his authority in our lives to serve us and to love us. But even we Christians sometimes have become entitled Well, Jesus, you didn't, you didn't really give me what I needed today. What's wrong with you? I'm not going to serve you now. You're, you're ticking me off. Come on now. I'm touching, I don't know, some chords, I guess. We'll just keep going. God help us. So here we end this part of this first story. I spent a lot of time on this first story. Because I'm going to tell you, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me go off of this first story. He said, hammer this. Hammer this point home. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned to the crowd, following him, and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then when they went home, they returned and found the servant made well. 
don't you want to live a life that amazes Jesus? Church, I'm going to tell you, this church has done that many times. I'm telling you, I believe God popped heavenly popcorn when we built this building. And God said, look at what they're doing. They're trusting me and believing me. They've taken all their provision and they built up some land and now they're cutting a building in four and they're transporting it over farmer's field and they're sacrificing and they're giving and they're serving and they're loving and they're building a house that for generations people's lives will be changed because of it and all the angels are going, man, that's amazing and God's like, I'm amazed too. Amen? And church, this is the heart of God for us that we would live amazing lives as we walk with this gracious, incredible king. And if we will live that way, he will begin to move more and more toward us. I love that thought that Jesus moved toward the centurion. I'll go to your house. Even though I'm going to take a hit like Peter took a little bit later, but I'll go. But that guy said, no, you don't even need to come. Just say the word. So here we go. Number one is... When do we see Jesus, Mr. Clean, move toward us? Submissive faith. The second one is this, humble need. I'm just going to read this scripture. It won't come up, but you can listen, follow along. Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town's gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When they saw her, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. He went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, which is just like a plank. And the bearers stood still. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. Hallelujah. So Mr. Clean's walking along. He's going to do a ministry call. And uh, suddenly he sees this dead body being carried out of a widow, her, her only son. We don't quite comprehend the devastation that would be. She's already a widow. She's really living and relying on her son to provide for her needs. And now her only son has died. Jesus sees this desperate need. And he goes up and he places his hand on the buyer. Now, why is that significant? It's illegal for him to do that. That's what we don't understand. <laughs> Numbers 19.11 says this, whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He's walking in this moment. He's... he's, he's tearing back religious veils, and he's saying, no, we're not living that way anymore because I'm more powerful than death. Hallelujah. And so this dead body's being carried. Jesus goes and does what a rabbi could never do, place his hand on the buyer. Young man, you need to go back to your mama. She has need. Amen? Amen. He 
calls him up, calls him awake, gives him back to the mom. People are like, wow, wow, wow. She's not going to be subject to abject poverty in this moment. Jesus was not defiled by the dead body, but brought life where there was death. How many of you know in your own lives, we get saved, we come to Jesus, but there are still dead parts of us. There's still parts of us that are not following in the kingdom of God. There are parts of us that are not alive. There are greedy parts of us and jealous parts of us and angry parts of us and parts of us that need to be resurrected into a new life. And Jesus is not scared to come into your life and to lay his hand on you and say, I'm here. Hallelujah. What you were is not what you're going to be. I'm walking with you. Hallelujah. Mr. Clean is here to take care of some needs. Now, that's a powerful and a hopeful story. But maybe if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, I've had many needs that I brought to Jesus, and he's not moved toward fixing them right away. I understand that. Maybe this story is bringing you some anger instead of some comfort. But I want you to understand in this life we will have trouble. We know that. But how faith works, church, and I've preached on this before, so I'm just going to quickly say it. Faith is based on three things. Number one is it needs a testimony. So a testimony is a first-hand authentication of a fact. So if God says, let's say you need healing in your life, God says, um, by his stripes you have been healed. Forget not all his benefits, Psalm 103, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. That's a testimony. Are you following me? Okay? Now, if you've got a testimony and you're hanging on to a testimony, you're believing God for healing, hallelujah, hallelujah, I'm going to tell you the second phase of faith really sucks. It'll be tested. <laughs> if you're going to believe God for something, it's going to be tested, and it's tested by two things. Are you ready for this? The silence of God and the scream of the enemy. Okay, let me give you an example. I'm going to, oh, maybe, maybe I won't. No, I'm going to give it to you anyway. Remember when they, Jesus said, Look, get, guys, get in the boat, we're going to the other side? What is that? It's a testimony. <laughs> they get in the boat, and Jesus goes to sleep in the back of the boat, the silence of God. He gives the testimony, and then he goes silent. Then what happens next? Such a fierce storm comes up that seasoned generational fishermen think they're going to die. They turn around thinking, surely the preacher is terrified right now. And where's Jesus? Sleeping in the back of the boat. Master, master, wake up. We're going to die. <coughs> what is wrong with you guys? Didn't I say we're going to the other side? Now, that sounds fun and exciting. But how many know when you're in the middle of the test, it's not fun and exciting? Believe in God for healing. Woo! God's so good. God is going to heal me. And then you're going through hell in the midst of that healing. Anybody ever been there? Okay. So then how, how does that testimony 
gets strengthened so we come to the finish line. It's going to be tested. It gets, it gets strengthened by us being truthful, which is actually the greatest thing in the world. We can actually say to God, God, man, I'm in serious pain here. You've promised healing for me. It's not going well. That's being truthful. But your word says, that's also being truthful. It's this two sides of truth. You don't have to be in denial when you're going through a difficult time. Okay? So, guys, I, I'm living this right now. I'm telling you, I'm living this story. I'm living it right now. Most of you know I had a really bad tooth problem for the last three months. And uh, I've just been praying and I've been seeking God. And in the midst of that, I've been having like brutal tooth pain that specialists can't figure out, dentists can't figure out, blah, 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 blah. So I just go to God because there's, I'm like, there's no other solution here, God. Well, my tooth pain is reduced by like 90 some percent. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> You're saying, why not 100? I, I, well, God apparently says you need to keep pressing in and learning a few more things, Greg. Okay. Church, that's part of it. You've got to fight sometimes. It's the fight of faith. Hallelujah. Okay, okay. So when do we see Jesus move toward us? Submissive faith, humble need, and lastly, a repentant heart. Repentant heart. This is in Luke chapter 7 again, starting at verse 36. I'm not going to read the entire portion, but I'll tell you the story. Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. He's invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house, okay? And he goes to the Pharisee's house, and he's eating with the Pharisee, uh, who is like the religious people of that day, you know them. And... Um, as they're eating, this woman comes in who's a woman of ill repute, okay? She's a sinful woman. This is how it's, she's described. And uh, likely a prostitute. In, and so G, she comes in with this alabaster jar of perfume. She's behind Jesus, and she goes to the ground. She begins to weep. She's washing his feet with her tears. She's wiping the feet with her hair, she pours this expensive alabaster perfume on her feet, and the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him right now. You see, it was, again, illegal. She was unclean. And then I'm going to pick up the story. Let me read it to you. Jesus answered him, and he said, Simon, verse 40, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not kiss me, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she entered the house. You have not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. 
as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. He says to the sinful woman, go, your sins are forgiven. Wow. (laughs) You see, guys, you want God to move toward you? This is one of the greatest ways in which God moves toward you. When you are a repentant sinner. In our world today, I'm going to offend a few people right now. There are people that are asking the church and God to accept them, but they won't repent. We can't do that. All we can do is say, you know what, there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. And if you will walk with God and you will come just as you are, you don't have to change a thing, but you can't stay there because God won't ever allow something that is going to kill you to continue in your life. He won't. I love this thought. You've heard me say it before. Love loves unto purity. Let me change that language. Love loves unto deliverance. The heart of God is to deliver this world from sin, not to celebrate sin. Now, that's good news for you and me because there are days when Greg Fraser, every day, every day, Greg Fraser looks at his life every day and he says, oh God, I took my authority and I was selfish with it, Lord. I serve myself, God, today. I didn't serve others enough, Lord. God, I was selfish with my wife today, and I took advantage of that love relationship, God, instead of serving her. Forgive me, God, and change me. Church, that should be your prayer every day. Every day. God will bring up things in your life, in your day, in your story that you're like, oh, I'm using my authority for selfish means instead of bringing my authority to serve others. But the good news is if you're repentant, God moves toward you in an instant. Hallelujah. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin and all of our unrighteousness. Hallelujah. What a story. When we come to God in repentance, he moves to meet us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's the band come back now. We're going to close with a song. I, I pray to Jesus, I prayed for you this week that this would hit your hearts. That God is giving you keys. He's giving you keys to see him move toward you. These are not weak keys. (laughs) They are powerful keys. Submissive faith is one of those keys. Just utter need presented to him in faith is one of them as well. And our brokenness turning toward him in our sinfulness with a repented heart. Let me tell you a story. The turn of the century in the 19th century 
the German Confederation, there were rumors of revolution and rioting that began to happen, and so the federal government went into a panic. They began to conscript young men and drafted them into the army to guard the borders and to put down the revolts. In one of the German villages, there was this uh, incredible old stonewalled church with a beautiful, incredible stately pipe organ. It was renowned from the region of just the sound that would come from that organ. One day a young man came to that church and he knocked on the door. And as he was knocking on the door, the caretaker who was busy doing some other things came and opened the door. And the young man was in a military uniform. He had been conscripted and called to this war that was happening. And he, he just humbly with his hat in his hand said, I'm wondering, sir, if you would let me play the organ here for one hour. I've been given a leave for 24 hours. I've heard about this organ and I would love to come and play it. And the janitor said, no. Only the church organist can play that organ. But the young man began to plead with him. No, sir, you don't understand. I, I, I ask you, please, let me play the organ. I've heard about this organ. I, I've traveled a far way to come here. This may be my last opportunity for where I'm being sent is the front lines and the fighting is fierce. Finally, something in the heart of the caretaker changed and he said, okay, but you'll need a key because the organ is locked. And so the caretaker handed him the key. The young man went and unlocked the organ, lifted the panel and began to play. The caretaker was enraptured. He's like, who is this? And he sat and he listened as wave after wave of glorious music began to bathe over him. The people from the town could hear the organ playing in the church and they began to gather. And the church became full. People, as they walked in, took off their hats and went and sat and listened to the young man who was enraptured. He didn't even know what was going on. He was just playing. And he played for a solid hour music right from heaven. And at the end, people stood and applauded him. And he was shocked that they were even there. He humbly took the key and relocked the organ and went back to the caretaker and said, thank you for letting me do this. The caretaker grabbed his hands and he said, young man, who are you? He said, my name is Felix, Felix Mendelssohn. Felix Mendelssohn was the most renowned organist in all of Europe and had been since he was about 20 years old. He gave the key back and he walked off into the street, no one else to see him again as he went to the front lines. The caretaker sat trembling as he realized I had the master here and I almost didn't give him the key. I almost didn't give him the key. Church, you have keys that God has given you. It's beautiful, submissive faith. He's a good, good authority over your life. You can trust him. You can live obediently toward him. You can come with your need and you can come with your sin. You're not going to scare him. He's going to change your life. Amen. Thanks for joining us. For more of our messages and information on our ministries, you can visit tfhchurch.ca. Have a great week.